Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. A commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. The rainforest of Borneo is the oldest rainforest in the world. It is 130 million years old. It is filled with big giant trees and there are hardly any sunlight that reach the forest floor. Every single inch in this forest is just filled with life. Yeah, for me, as a tropical forest ecology, I got pretty excited and pumped up when I am in a rainforest because there's so many things to see, so many stories to tell, and there's so many things that we need to learn from this forest. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, where this week... We've got a mission. We're going on a bear hunt. It is not easy. It is not guaranteed that every day when we track the bears, we are managed to see them. But at least we can get close and then try to find some clues of what they do in the forest. In this episode, we're tracking down some elusive animals. Animals that aren't too keen on being found. With people who know exactly what they're looking for. It is extremely difficult to get a direct observation because the bear is very shy. The vegetation is so thick. Uh, but sometimes if I was lucky, I managed to catch up and then observe the bears, you know, sleeping on trees, foraging and that kind of activity. These are like precious moments. Our first adventure is in Borneo, deep in the rainforest on the far north of the island. And we're on the lookout for the world's smallest and rarest bear, the sun bear. It's only found in the tropical forests of Southeast Asia and the Bornean subspecies is found only right here. The rainforest is huge, and the bears are small and shy. But luckily we've got some help. Some high-tech equipment and an expert guide. There are three pieces of devices that we need. First of all, the radio collar. Either it's a VHS radio collar or a satellite collar. This is Su Ti Wong, founder of the Bornean Sun Bear Conservation Centre. The bears he's tracking are rescued animals that have been rehabilitated and released but they all wear a radio collar for the first year so that Siu Ti can keep an eye on them. It can be looks bulky, but actually the one that we use right now is about 400 grams. So this headlight collar would tell us where this release bear went. There's two pieces of equipment. One is called a directional antenna. When the front of the antenna pointed towards the direction of the animals, the receiver will meet a beeping sound, a beep beep, beep, like that. When the front part of the antenna pointed towards to the animals, the strength of the beep is the strongest. And then we go to that area and then slowly track them on foot. Silti is the world's foremost authority on a bear we know very little about. Sun bear is the smallest bear in the world. They got short, sleek black fur with tiny little eye, with tiny little ears. 
they got long claws, very very big claws. They got really long tongue, up to like 30 centimeter long, and then uh, all of them have a big chest patch. These chest patch are unique. They are like our fingerprints. There's no two bears share the same kind of patterns. We know that these chest patch play some very important role as communication. Something like a warning sign means that hey, I'm here. You know, don't mess around with me. They are the least known bear in the world. Not many people knows that this bear actually exists until recently. They are something that we call a keystone species, you know. And a forest with sun bears and a, compared to a forest without sun bear will be very different. So we need to keep sun bears in our forest, yes. So sun bear across Southeast Asia have faced tremendous threats from many, many human activities. Besides deforestation or habitat loss, people poach sun bear for their meat and also parts like gallbladder are very important traditional medicines. Another threat that the sun bear face is that the sun bear baby, the sun bear cubs are extremely cute. People want to keep them as pets. And then when they grow big, grow ferocious, then they will build a small cage, cage this bear for the rest of their life. So all in all, these are the threats that the sun bears uh, face today. They are not in good shape. And a few years ago, the West Malaysia governments announced that there are only 300 to 500 sun bear left in entire West Malaysia. So it is extremely, extremely worrying for me as a sun bear biologist, and I'm very, very concerned about their future. I feel like I need to do something about it. So my plan is to establish a sun bear center, a sun bear conservation center to help these bears. So over the last 13 years, we managed to rescue and, and help 65 bears. Silti and his team give the rescued bear cubs the care they need until they're big enough to go it alone. And then they're released into a protected patch of forest. Complete, of course, with the tracking collar. A lot of scientific information can be gathered from this radio collared animal. We program this collar to break away after 12 months so that the bears do not need to wear a collar after the battery wear off. When I track a bears, you know, there's all this mixed feeling, okay? First of all, I'm very excited. You know, we're excited. Oh, today we are going to see this bear. Working in this rainforest is very tiring, yeah? The terrain up and down, muddy, pouring rains, lots of leeches. Uh, so it is not a very easy environment to work with, so to speak. And then when we get close, you know, we are a little bit, you know, the adrenaline surge come out. We are oh, so nervous because what if this bear, you know, start to charge us, yeah, or get mad at us. And then at the same time, we are very happy to collect these scientific data that no one knows before. With so little known about them, there are discoveries to be made on every trip. Before I started my study, no one knows sun bear can climb tree. So one day I was tracking my radio collar bear called Lai Xiong. I managed to track him to a fruiting fig tree. I know that this signal is so strong. The bear must be somewhere very close. And then I accidentally pointed my antenna towards the tree canopy and then I received a stronger signal. And then I pointed downward again on the forest floor, it become weak. Going up to the tree becomes strong. It means that the collar is on top of the tree. I said, 
this bear must be in the tree. I finally, I managed to find a little opening and managed to get my binoculars and scan for the tree canopy and then saw that bear about 40 meters above the ground. That was a jaw-dropping experience for me the very first time I know that, wow, this bear can climb trees. Right now, Suti follows the bears. But not so long ago, they would have been following him. It all starts when they first arrive at the centre. In the wild, sun bear cub always tag along with mum. They would never leave mums for far. However, the bears that we receive, their mum has been killed. So when we rescue those bears, especially the, the young ones, we need to play the role as the surrogate mother. And then after the bonding established, we can walk them in the forest. This process is called walking the bear. And then this, this bear cub, when they enter the forest, there are so many things that they can do. They can forage, they can climb trees, they can dig the soil, they can sleep high on top of trees, just like uh, wild bears do in the forest. So this timing is very important because when they are small, the instinct of foraging is still there with them. So it is very important for us to walk the bear cubs in the forest on a daily basis until they are too big and not so safe anymore to walk three to four years or five years until they can be released back into the wild. Yeah, so it is a very, very special experience to spend time all day long with the bears. Yeah. The tracking missions into the forest don't always end in success. It's not always a bear you find at the end of the trail of beeps. That story is not from my story. It is one of my colleagues, Gabriela Fredriksen. And one day, one of her radio caller bears did not move. So all of our callers, when the caller did not move for eight hours, the caller would admit a mortality signal. The beep that we receive is very slow. These animals either drop her collar or this animal is dead. So she went to look for this collar or the bears. Instead of finding a dead animals or a collar fall on the forest floor, she found a big snake, a seven meters reticulated python with big belly. Big belly means that this bear is inside that belly with a radio collar that is still transmitting signal. So she managed to uh, capture this snake in the hope that these snakes regurgitate some bones, some claws, uh, some teeth or whatever. But these snakes did not regurgitate anything. Instead, the snake digests the entire bears. After two months, uh, she had to like, ask a vet to operate the snakes to retrieve the radio collar, which is still beeping. The vet sutured it back and then released the snake back into the forest alive. So this is a very interesting story. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like when I walk in the forest, I told myself what would be a more meaningful thing to do in my life than helping those orphan sun bear cubs to have a second chance to be able to live like a wild bears here. Yeah. If you want to find out more about the sun bears and the efforts to save them, maybe even adopt one, just search for the Borneoan Sun Bear Conservation Centre. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where today we're using all the tech at our disposal to track down elusive creatures. And when the animals in question aren't conveniently rigged with satellite collars, well, perhaps you can just use your ears. Our next story is about a composer who went from a world of piano nocturnes to eavesdropping on the nocturnal lives of birds. Magnus Robb trained as a musician and a composer, and in the 90s he started making recordings of birdsong to use as inspiration. But gradually, recording the music of the birds eclipsed his own music making and took over as his life's work. It's a passion that's taken him all over the world. One time I went on a spring trip to Cyprus, and I just happened to come across a nest box. Now, there's this very common species on Cyprus called the Cypress scopsal, and I was pretty sure that it must have been put there for them. So I had these two little, very expensive, tiny microphones about the size of a chocolate almond, and I decided to tie them onto branches on either side of the nest box and just leave the recorder there overnight and see if the owls were active or not. Leaving the microphones recording all night Magnus got to eavesdrop on the secret nighttime activities of the Cypress Scops Owl. And now, thanks to his recordings, so do we. Magnus got very lucky. So did the owls, in fact. This is the rarely heard sound of a Scops Owl pair mating. Now, when I got back the next day, one of the microphones was gone. I looked under the tree. Was there any sign of the microphone? No, it had just vanished. So my mind started racing. I tried to think about what could have possibly happened. And I thought, well, the recorder was still running. Whatever had happened had been recorded, at least up to the point where it was nipped off. And it turned out when I listened to the recording, the female, she was sitting right next to the microphone for a long time, waiting for the male to bring food And at some point she took an interest in the microphone and started nibbling it. She nibbled the wire and nibbled the wire and this sounded pretty excruciating, I have to say. It was a lot of nibbling. Imagine an owl nibbling your ear. And then at a certain point she finally managed to break the the wire (laughs) and then the thing just cut off. And from this point onwards, it was just white noise. And that was it. And I don't know if she took it up to the nest box and dropped it inside. I don't know, but she'd done it. It was her. (laughs) It was bird watching, not listening, that first drew Magnus away from music composition. 
he was living in the Netherlands and began doing trips to the coast to watch enormous flocks of birds passing overhead, migrating south, having crossed the North Sea. You can sometimes see 50,000 birds in one morning. With tens of thousands of small birds flying over your head in an enormous cloud, identifying what you're looking at becomes a real challenge. They just look like tiny dots in the sky. So to tell what they are, you have to listen. The sounds are the key in this situation. And I noticed that there were some people that were doing this and they were very sharp in their calls. And they were really good. I was very impressed. And I wanted to do that too. So I started doing something that they hadn't thought of yet, which was to record everything. What began as audio detective work to confirm what he was seeing in the day became more and more part of his bird watching. And the good thing about listening is, unlike watching, you can do it after dark. You might think that the birds would be asleep then, but many migrating birds fly all through the night. Swooping overhead in the darkness, they call to one another. And Magnus, listening on the ground, can tell exactly who's up there. When I moved to Portugal, I started taking it much more seriously. And there's an old fortress there, and that was a particularly good spot. So I used to go there and sit there for two or three hours after dark. I'd lie on the ground, just listen and listen and listen. When I first started doing this, even in the whole of Europe, there may have been only one or two people recording nocturnal migration at night in any kind of systematic way. So there was everything to learn. There were some birds that had calls at night that they don't often use during the day, and there were some huge challenges to, to decipher what was going on. And then it was only after a year or two of doing this that I thought of actually trying it in my own backyard. Magnus rigs up microphones pointing to the sky and leaves them recording all night, crossing his fingers that in the morning he'll find something exciting. I'm an optimist, so I'm always very excited when I go to pick up the gear and see what I've got. It's a bit like some kinds of fishing, fishing where you cast a net and you don't know what's going to be in it when you pull it in. Your imagination is going wild as you think about the possibilities. So I bring in the equipment and then it takes a good long while to go through it as well. And within the first week of me trying that, I got something amazingly rare. About an hour after I'd gone to bed one night, an upland sandpiper flew over, which is an American wader species, a kind of small American curlew. And one flew over here, just called once, but it's so distinctive that I was quite sure that that's what it was, and I st I'm still sure it was. And that was absolutely amazing, because it was only the third, I think, for Portugal at the time. So that really got me hooked. From then on, I did a lot of recording at home, in the backyard. The birds that his microphones pick up while he's sleeping are often travelling distances that boggle the mind. Here in Portugal, there's a particular phenomenon with the pied flycatcher, which is a bird that has a breeding range stretching from Spain all the way across to Mongolia, I think. So across a, a huge range of longitude. So birds from ridiculously long distances across Siberia will fly a long way west to Spain and Portugal before heading south into Africa. And I've had up to 1,300, I think, in a single night. Although Magnus was one of the first to do it, 
Recording the nocturnal migration of birds has now become known by the abbreviation NOCMIG, and it's becoming more and more popular, partly as a way for birdwatchers to expand their horizons while COVID-19 has restricted travel. Traditional bird migration tracking is done by radar, but radar can't tell you what species you're detecting. NOCMIG is filling the gaps. And sometimes, Magnus can even track where they've been, just by their song, something that struck him on a day out with his kids one day when he heard a bird giving a travel report. I was visiting a town in the south of Portugal called Mertola, and there's an old chapel beside the castle, and that chapel used to be a mosque. And there, sitting on top of the former mosque, was a small bird called the black-eared wheatear singing its song. And as I was listening, I noticed a sound that kept reappearing in the song, which really blew me away. It was the sound of an African chaffinch that lives in Morocco. And this bird had heard one, presumably in Morocco, and was incorporating the sound into its song. And for me, this really spoke to me because I realised the chances are that bird had arrived during the night. So within the last day or two, it had heard an African chaffinch had learned the sound and incorporated it into its song. And for me, that was a very poetic example because there he was incorporating this Moorish Moroccan sound into its song while sitting on top of the former mosque of Mertola. The composer Igor Stravinsky said, great composers don't borrow material from other people, they steal it. Um, so lots of birds use sounds of other species in their songs. And so what this means is that you can make an educated guess about where a bird has been on its migration. So for example, here in Portugal, I can listen to a woodchat shrike and it winters in Senegal. And if you listen to them in Portugal, you can hear them imitating parakeets. You can also hear them imitating sounds that they heard in North Africa on the way back or in other parts of Iberia on their travels. Magnus's work Listening to night after night of recordings could soon be used to inform where we build wind turbines to keep out of the way of migration flight paths. It's painstaking, but it's the challenge that keeps him going, tracking down the notes and noises that drift over most of our sleeping heads in the dead of night. It becomes addictive, you know. You learn so much and you want to learn more, and sometimes it gets a bit too much all this time sitting at a computer analysing these sounds. But of course, I keep coming back to it because it really does fascinate me. And whether I continue to do this at the same intensity for many more years or just at a lower intensity, it's something that will always interest me. And uh, I will always be wanting to learn something new through Notmig. Our final story today is not about tracking an animal. It's more about tracking a place. A place that's moving so slowly that the human mind struggles to process the idea that it's moving at all. I think until you've visited a glacier or an ice cap, you know, it's really difficult to get a sense of just how huge they are. And, you know, because they are moving and they are dynamic, they really make you aware of this sort of vast sort of system and, you know, these forces which are constantly at work with each other. Up close, they seem, you know, completely static, you know, completely immovable. If you're standing in front of a glacier, you know, it has a consistency more like rock, you know, it's something that's almost like a geological force. 
And I think, you know, to then understand that this is a dynamic thing, that, that this is flowing and moving, and it's almost, you know, comes to life in some way. That's a really sort of powerful realisation, I think. Kieran Baxter knows a thing or two about glaciers, and his love for them goes way back to his childhood. I grew up visiting glaciers with my parents and with my family, and that, I think, has given me a, a real appreciation for these landscapes and, and these places. We visited Iceland in particular during the sort of 1990s. My dad was taking photographs. He is a, a landscape photographer professionally, so he was kind of building a, a portfolio of photographs of these places in Iceland. If you've ever visited Scotland and bought a calendar or a postcard as a souvenir, there's a decent chance that you'll have seen the work of Colin Baxter. He's a landscape photographer, famous for capturing the rugged drama and intense beauty of the Scottish landscape. He's also Kieran's dad and was a pretty adventurous holidaymaker in the 80s and 90s. In Iceland, he was kind of travelling out there and taking the whole family, so myself and my brother and my mum were, were kind of going to the, these places as well and you know, spending a lot of time in amongst these landscapes. It really built up this quite close relationship with the place, I think, because we were spending you know, many weeks travelling sometimes during the summer. That experience has definitely left me with that sort of understanding of the kind of quiet power of these places and you know, how it can really sort of affect your mindset, I suppose. Whatever I ended up doing, it was always going to be in the outdoors. I was going to find a, a reason, an excuse to kind of go back to these incredible places. Fast forward several decades, and Kieran's now working as a researcher and a filmmaker at the University of Dundee. But glaciers are still very much a part of his life. He specialises in photogrammetry. It really just means, you know, a process of deriving three-dimensional information from two-dimensional photographs. If you take a series of photographs of, say, a mountain range, all from slightly different angles, Kieran can combine those images to make an accurate 3D model of the terrain. It's been around for a long time, but nowadays we can use digital tools to do very high-resolution three-dimensional models. The work that we're doing is obviously has a huge amount of overlap with the landscape photography that my dad was doing. It's quite a different context, a different way of approaching these landscapes now. But yeah, there's definitely been a, a major influence in what's led me to be working in this area. Using drone photography and photogrammetry, Kieran and his team have built high-resolution 3D maps of glaciers all across the Alps. But recording what they look like now is only half the story. The real goal is to show how the glaciers have changed over time, to monitor how fast and how far the ice is receding. To do that, you need to go back in time. Where could you find high-quality photographs of mountain ranges from an era long before drone photography that would do the job? It's a quest that took Kieran back to the turn of the 20th century and the dawn of aeronautics. We started to look at these very early 20th century aerial photographs which exist of the Alps from these really quite pioneering flights. We were looking at a sequence originally from a balloon flight from Edward Spelterini. These are very old photographs from 1909. Edward Spelterini was a Swiss aviation pioneer who dazzled crowds with his daring feats in his hot air balloon. Not long after, Walter Mittelholzer took to the skies in a tiny biplane. It would have been an open cockpit uh, biplane, and he would have been probably at the back, uh, pretty much leaning over the edge of the, of the plane, travelling at, at great speed in very cold temperatures. It's quite an unbelievable feat. Both men were pioneers, going where no one else dared. And luckily for Kieran, both of them took photographs while they were up there. 
So we have these incredible photographs uh, which cover the glaciers that come down from the Mont Blanc Massif. We kind of realised that we could use those photographs to extract three-dimensional information. Now all Kieran needed to do was to recreate these early photographs. With a combination of high-tech GPS plotting and a good old-fashioned triangulation, they calculated the exact point in the sky that the originals had been taken from, to within a metre or so. Air travel has changed a lot since the days of hot air balloons and open cockpit biplanes, but the daredevil aspect of aerial photography apparently remains largely unchanged. So we used a helicopter to repeat those photographs, to, to kind of fly through those points as closely as we possibly can. The door of the helicopter is open, and so I'm sat on the edge of the, the helicopter with my feet kind of braced against the skid of the helicopter which is obviously very windy and very cold, and, but yeah, a, quite an extreme, exhilarating but extreme experience. When they got the photos back, the comparison between the historical images and the modern recreations was stark. That's the kind of moment when you can really see the comparison, when you can kind of move back and forward between the historical image and the repeat photograph this huge kind of drop in the surface of the ice and then in some places recession of the margin by up to a kilometre in a sort of 100 year period. Nothing can prepare you for seeing that for the first time. I think it still kind of takes your breath away. I think looking at those comparisons is really, you know, kind of heart stopping at some point to see those changes for the first time. It gives us a very visible and tangible way of, of tracking the effects that, that climate changes are already beginning to have to really visualise the changes in our atmosphere which are otherwise quite invisible sometimes. With the glaciers of the Alps under his belt, Kieran and the team used the same methods on another set of glaciers, this time in Iceland. Using a cache of high-resolution photographs taken in the 1980s for mapping purposes and recreating them using drones this time, not dangling out of the back of a helicopter, Kieran was able to map the movement of the glaciers. In Iceland too, the comparison between then and now is shocking. There's two uh, glaciers in particular that we kind of lingered on. One is Bredemarkjökull, which is a very popular tourist attraction in, in Iceland. It's a huge uh, glacier, but it's also one of the places in Iceland where the ice is retreating the fastest by sometimes hundreds of metres per year across a vast, vast scale. So it's something like 12 kilometres wide and 45 kilometres long. This is something which is very clearly being driven by human activity. It's almost like the kind of ground zero in Iceland for climate change. At this point, Kieran realised that there was something missing from the beautiful aerial shots he'd been collecting. Something he'd witnessed himself as a child when first gazing up at these vast walls of ice. A human sense of scale. We were focused on the aerial photography and the kind of three-dimensional work that we were doing. But at some point we kind of realised that we were always struggling to get a sense of of the scale of the landscape, and I think it always risks becoming sort of distanced and, and removed from the real world kind of experiences. So then I became more interested in finding ground-based perspectives to kind of relate them to what it's like to go and visit these places. And that was the moment when he remembered a source of exactly such pictures. Very close to home, in fact. And of course the first place that I, I went was to go and speak to my dad. You know, these are places that my dad knows very well from those early trips. So yeah, we started to dig through those collections of slides and find images that showed the glaciers from particular angles. And that was a really interesting comparison to see 
almost like the aesthetic impression that that change would have when you're looking at the landscape from the valley. It means we have some, you know, some incredible things that we wouldn't have really been able to see otherwise, such as the height drop further up the glacier and these things which are quite difficult to see sometimes. But this quite, you know, kind of unusual collection of images kind of helps us to kind of piece together that picture. Again, Kieran set out to recreate the images of the past, this time on foot. It's a question of sort of hunting the location. It's very, very sensitive. Um, you know, you have to find a location to within a metre or so, I'd say, to get you know, a really good kind of overlap. It's a question of trial and error and a bit of patience to kind of hunt down the exact same spot. And that's a really also became a kind of a slightly eerie experience was to at some point find exactly the same rock that my dad was stood on in 1989. And of course, you know, the landscapes changed not just in terms of the glaciers, uh, but we're often, you know, sort of stood on the edge of a road which has fallen out of use or you can kind of see where there's been erosion and the paths have changed and quite heartbreaking in a way to sort of revisit these landscapes after so much change. Uh, there's, there's definitely emotion attached, and especially you know in Iceland, for example, because of course I've been visiting these, these landscapes since I was very young, and um, so you do have that, that attachment and you want to be able to go back in future as well, and, and that's simply not going to be possible to have those same experiences. You know, oftentimes the glacier that my dad was photographing in a particular moment is simply isn't there anymore, and that you know is quite a, a jaw-dropping sort of moment. And that again, you know, has a has a quite a forceful sort of emotional impact on you, um, that you know you couldn't you can't really prepare for in terms of, um, you know, just through looking at the images alone. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and our stories today were produced by me and by Tom Bonnet. That's the end of the current series of the BBC Earth podcast. I hope you've enjoyed getting just a little taste of the wild world at a time when so many of us have seen our own horizons temporarily shrinking. While we're gone, please do subscribe to our newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter or leave a review wherever you pick us up so others can find us too. And thanks so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.